0: Hello and welcome to the Student Council Podcast, an educational advice show made for students and by students where everyone is qualified to talk about their own experiences. My name is Carter Dvorak and today I am so excited to be joined by my history professor from the University of Michigan who taught me the history of superheroes and American pop cultures, Professor Anthony Moore. Thank you for coming on the show today. I cannot wait to chat with you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, before we start into anything, I just want to hear what have been your favorite five minutes of the past week.
1: So my favorite five minutes of the past week probably was doing some um, research that I've been working on in terms of the character of Zorro and looking into a person, an actual historical person named Joaquin Marietta, who's often... Claim to be the the real life Zorro from the 19th century, so that was a lot of fun.
0: That sounds really cool. I'm really excited to get into all of the Zorro research because it just sounds really fascinating and really exciting. But that's I didn't know that there was like a real life you know Zorro out there, but that seems really cool.
1: Well, people claim that, right? <laughs> I, I have my doubts um, <laughs> because I'm not sure the creator of Zorro really was that invested in real history. But this actual person named Marietta has been linked to Zorro for a long time now but so
0: and he was an interesting, I mean,
1: Marietta was a very interesting character himself, so he was uh, sort of a vigilante who was operating during the time of the gold rush in California in 18, late 1840s, early 1850s.
0: Okay, interesting. Was he all purple or no?
1: No, um, he did wear a cloak from time to time, but he had yeah, no Zs carved or Ms carved into anything as far as I'm aware, so.
0: Alas. Okay, before I dive more into Zoro talk, because I could easily just deviate right into that, <laughs> I want to back up a little bit. I'm just really curious to hear about, it. I love talking to everybody college experiences and so you first graduated with a bachelor's in art history I before anything just want to hear how did that passion for history develop
1: so I think that I mean the story I often tell and I've told it so many times it's probably almost true
0: um,
1: is that I always had a pretty clear interest in history even as a kid my parents were really interested in history Um, and growing up in New Mexico there's a lot of it around you in terms of native cultures, the sort of long-standing um, colonization from Spain, then Mexico, then the United States. But when I was uh, somewhere around fifth or sixth grade, I read a book on the Titanic, and this was like way before the sort of big blockbuster movie on the Titanic, and even before they had found the wreckage. And after I read that, I you know would sort of relate to people what I had learned from that. And people were actually really interested to find out about things that I knew. And I realized, oh, actually, there's something really exciting about being able to tell people things about the past. Um, so yeah, that was probably my first entry into history. And then I was fortunate to have some pretty good history teachers in high school, sort of continue to stoke my interests. And then when I went to the University of New Mexico, I had imagined that I would be a high school history teacher, but while I was at the university, a couple of things happened. One, I learned about being able to do your own original research, going into archives, looking at documents, and that was even better than, into my mind, than reading um, history. And then the other thing was that you know the the histories that are often told about the United States lack, especially then, which was in the 1990s, lacked so many different groups. Um, Um, And for me, especially Mexican-Americans just weren't present. And so I had a lot of questions about where they were during particular moments, especially in the 19th century. Um, And so that encouraged me or prompted me to want to find out and to do that type of research.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. I feel like I I even see the like the track of not only going into history to like learn, but the history to, to tell and to share those stories, which is really, really cool. And I think you were like a really good, I would almost say like storyteller in the way you did your lectures in the course that I got to have with you or like you did a really great job like explaining everything in this like kind of narrative fashion which is really awesome and so overall like do you kind of like look back with like fondness of your time at university of new mexico i remember reading somewhere that you graduated summa cum laude and i'm curious of kind of how did that how'd you maintain that i assume that didn't come like easily to you but was that something you went in wanting or did it kind of just were you so engaged that it happened um
1: i would say it happened
0: um i
1: part of it was because i did major in history and I was really interested in those classes so when you're interested in something you tend to do better in them than if you're not. Um, I do look back fondly at the University of New Mexico it is a really unique um college experience um it's a big state university of course that serves a state that a lot of people don't know a lot about um so it's new mexico is a non non-white majority state so it's incredibly diverse um the student body then and i think it's still true was non-traditional students so the average age of undergraduates when i was there was 28 oh wow so it wasn't a very typical sort of um Age cohort to be part of I was typically, you know, what would be typically the age cohort, but um, a lot of my peers in class weren't. And so that made for a really different set of um, discussions in class, um, a really different set of dynamics of people bringing a lot of life experiences into the classroom. So, you know, I have a lot of positive and I had really great professors at uh, New Mexico as well, especially in the history department. Um, so I thought it was fantastic. You know, the other thing was that I had to work when I was an undergraduate. So um, it was working part-time, um, sometimes full-time, often full-time, actually. So that was pretty exhausting. So that also made the experience probably not very typical for most um, most college students. but
0: Yeah. Did you find work like with the university or was it more off university, just kind of working in other spaces? No, I worked in other
1: spaces. So I worked mostly in clerical jobs. Um, So I worked for a while at a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. It was in Albuquerque. And then my senior year, I worked at a real estate company um, that managed one of those tall buildings in downtown
0: Albuquerque. Okay, interesting. Now, after University of New Mexico, you went to Notre Dame for a PhD, which I was kind of a surprise because my like Michigan rivalry senses were tingling. (laughs) Um, But I'm curious, how did that college experience differ both like, you know, going to a different school and also getting a PhD versus a Bachelor of Arts? Well,
1: Notre Dame was... I mean, so incredibly different than New Mexico. So going from a big state university to a small private liberal arts college um, was incredibly different. Um, you know, as I said, a very non-traditional student body at New Mexico and a very traditional student body at Notre Dame. Um, but as a graduate student, you're also a little bit removed from the sort of same type of experiences that undergraduates are having. I would say also that, um, you know, I was really committed. I was really wanting to do a PhD in history, but I was also probably very naive and a bit unprepared for what a PhD program actually entailed. It's a super intense amount of work, um, that I didn't necessarily maybe fully understand. And maybe that's probably good because maybe it would have deterred me from doing it. Probably pursuing a PhD in history is not a rational choice. Um, in any circumstance, um, but it really worked out. And again, I had a really great advisor um, whose name was Gail Biederman, who works on race and gender um, and very much influenced the type of thinking and the type of classes I teach today. So um, things seem to have worked out
0: that's greatly good that they seem to have worked out I'm curious what then even going from Notre Dame to Michigan do you feel any rivalry but beyond that like what kind of led you then to going to University of Michigan and kind of how did that differ from when you first went to Texas A&M
1: so yeah thanks my first job was at Texas A&M University um which was again back to another big large state university it's a flagship university for Texas um I had really good colleagues there good experiences there um um, but when the job in Michigan came up, I applied for it because, of course, Michigan is such an amazing place and the history department in particular is one of the highest ranked in the nation. So, I, I mean, I enjoyed my time at A M, but I definitely hoped to get them and was very happy to come to Michigan. Um, in terms of rivalry, well, I mean, Michigan does pay my salary, so I think my loyalty will always go there um, over you know, my alma mater, no offense, Notre <laughs> Dame. But there is a financial stake I have in Michigan now. So, So um, that's probably where I'm at with that.
0: That is very, very fair, for sure. Now, I'm curious, you know, it was cool to see that you've written a book, Border Dilemmas, which details the racial and national uncertainties in New Mexico from 1848 to 1912. And I'm really curious, because I haven't really gotten to talk to many professors who have written like books before. What was that process in writing that? When did you know, like, yes, this is what I want to make a first book about? And like, how do you think that even differed from like teaching about history to writing about it in a book sense? Like, what was that process like?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so it goes back to, what, I said earlier about um, being at the University of New Mexico and feeling like the classes I was taking, even at a place like New Mexico, which um, again has a Latino um, majority population, um, they just weren't there. Um, and especially in the 19th century. So you know, even in you know very thoughtful classes about U.S. history, like the U.S. Survey, it would come time to talk about the U.S.-Mexican War, which was from 1846 to 1848 which is when the United States um, basically takes what is today Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. And the the way that was often presented was, oh, the Mexican people who were living there were fine with it and just, you know, were happy to be part of the US. And that just really didn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, just logically that a war had happened. Suddenly they're, you know, sucked into a different nation. but, you know, there just at that time had not been a lot of um, historians had really looked seriously at what Mexican people in that time period were thinking. And so I just had questions. What did they think about that? How did they feel about becoming part of the U.S.? And as you might imagine, they had divided feelings. Some people were willing to take their chance with the U.S. And some people were very unhappy about being pulled into the U.S. Um, and that created tensions within the Mexican community about, you know, perceived loyalties, national loyalties, um, which then all also intersected with, you know, really um, strong racism that had developed in the U.S. Um, as part of the war, but maybe even before the war um, that continues to haunt the U.S. today. So those were, you know, some of the questions that I, I had for that book, which started as my dissertation. Um, and it is a different sort of uh, enterprise than teaching a class. So when you teach a class you're really trying to introduce, you know, a wide range of um, different ideas and um, different perspectives to students a sampling of things that happened things that can be very representative whereas with the book you can really focus on something um, specific and make your own very clear argument about something about the past at least for historians
0: yeah that's really really interesting I'd love to do you like does that topic come up in some of the classes you still teach at U of M like do you kind of ever like have you ever taught that book as a class essentially like where you've had that book as like the center point of it or do you kind of try to weave that into other courses?
1: Well, I probably don't have the ego
0: to sign my own book. Um, <laughs> <to class. laughs> Although some people do.
1: Some people do. I- I'm probably a little bit too shy about that. Um, but definitely, you know, I teach classes on the history of Mexicans and Mexican Americans in the U.S. Um, and, you know, we do spend a considerable amount of time in the earlier period, um, whereas I think older versions of a class like that would have really focused a lot in the 1960s and 1970s right which tend to be kind of the, the decades that for some reason people well not for some reason there are good reasons why people gravitate towards those decades but yeah. I think to a disservice to those earlier generations who were really trying to set up things and figure things out um, and kind of forgotten about, often forgotten about. So that's probably how it influences the way in which I teach. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. And and you've kind of de- delved into a bunch of the different history topics that you've taught. Of, again, Mexican-American history, sexuality and history, history and superheroes and pop culture. I guess I'm curious, like as you continue to teach these courses and, you know, interface with these different and new groups of students all these times, has your interactions with each of these subjects kind of changed as you've been in more classes, like engaged in discussions and taught them over time? So, yes. I mean,
1: I think that I learn a lot from students when I teach. um, And I think that the different, I mean, every class usually has its own personality because it's a combination of all the different students who are in it, what interests they're bringing to the class. Um, You know, teaching a history of Mexicans in the US attracts a very different set of students than perhaps the history of super class, which attracts a very different set of students than my sexuality class teaches, that attracts. Um, So those dynamics are really interesting to think about. Um, But it's also, you know, what students want to know about the past has changed itself over time from when I first started teaching, you know, 20 years ago. Um, It's inevitably the things that are going on around us today prompt different sorts of, um, you know, inquiries about what people were up to in the past or what was relevant about the past for how we understand ourselves today. So um, yeah, teaching is often a sort of ongoing process of revision and changing and rethinking things, so, but it's also a lot of fun, I think, so.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun on a student's end. And yeah, I'm always curious because you know I get four years worth of like being on the receiving end of being in courses, but I'm always fascinated by how these students have kind of changed, like the student perspectives have changed over time. You've gotten to see so many classes come through, and, and now I'm, I am—I really want to dive into the to the superheroes course and right. history three twenty eight, uh, particularly history of superheroes and American heroes and American pop culture. And I'm just curious, like, how did this start? How did your idea like get to that point? And like, was this a tough sell to get this as a class?
1: So it started because I, as I mentioned at the you know, the start of the podcast, I'm working on a project on the character of Zorro, um, who was one of the very early sort of superhero-esque type characters who came out of Pulp Fiction in um, 1919. And so because I was thinking about that character, I also was thinking about the sort of larger genre of superheroes and heroes in popular culture, but I was doing it from a historian's perspective. So I'm not trained as a literary person. I'm actually not really trained as a media scholar. I'm trained as a historian. So that that shapes the way in which I think about these um, characters. And I felt like there was, you know, there's something really important and interesting about how these characters have been so central to U.S. um, entertainment uh, since the early 20th century, or if not even earlier in our class, we went back even to the 19th century. Yeah. Um, And I felt like there was a way in which we could use the heroes to think through some of the sort of fundamental moments of change, particularly around questions of gender, masculinity, um, femininity, how those play out in the superheroes. Um, You know, I think that, again, I I was lucky the History Department at Michigan embraces experimentation. Um, You know, I think they were curious about what (laughs) what would happen in that type of class or, um, you know, uh, it was certainly an uncertain idea about what would go on in a class that focused on superheroes, but they were willing fortunately for me to try it out and i think it's been pretty good at least i've had really great students um so uh,
0: yeah so and you've taught the subject matter very very well as as well but i yeah it was an absolute blast to be in that course and i think definitely reframed the way that i thought of superheroes and heroes and fiction and such like did you find that i I guess you'd already been doing it with zoro but kind of diving into the other superheroes and like marvel and dc did that also affect your relationship with those characters and like kind of teaching and prepping for the course
1: it did change um my relationship to them um you know i think there is something different when you approach something as entertainment you know that you're you're intentionally often shutting off parts of your brain to just sort of have an experience that's fun and and, you know a little bit frivolous but if you reactivate parts of your brain that are you know more analytical um, you start to see things in a different way and ask different questions about what the heroes are why did they emerge in the particular time periods they emerged What made this, you know, these particular superheroes have longevity, whereas there's, you know, dozens if not hundreds of other superheroes that have been invented that have long since been forgotten and never picked up. I mean, so there's all sorts of really um, interesting things to ask about these, you know, this phenomenon. And it's also, you know, for today, it's one of the few touchstones we have in U.S. popular culture that almost everybody can access. Um, You know, almost everybody knows who Superman is. Almost. Everybody knows what the Marvel Universe is. Even if they aren't ardent fans of it, they probably have seen enough that they can talk about it or have some some sense of what it's about. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I remember I talking to you at the start of the semester. You had taught that same course like a couple of years prior for the first time. Now that you've gone through two full you know, teaching semesters of teaching the course, did you notice any big shifts from the first time you taught it to now? Or was it overall still so pretty similar?
1: So it did change from the first I mean any, again any class that you teach you learn a lot especially the first time you're teaching it um, and especially what works and what doesn't work as well um, and I think when I taught it the first time one of the things that I learned was um, that I had assumed a lot of people would be comic book readers which is mm. not the case anymore <laughs> um, most people's access point is actually the the Marvel Cinematic Universe which makes total sense right in retrospect yeah. But, um, for some reason, I had sort of assumed that. Um, the majority of students would arrive having read a bunch of comic books growing up which is just not the case so you know even just knowing that helped me figure out how to orient the class in a way that you know would start on a more common ground of um, what people actually know um, and i think reading the comic books and hopefully was surprising and interesting in a different way yeah. if you're more if your sort of first frame of reference is the cinematic universe so um, but yeah I mean this last time with you and um, everybody who was in that class it was Blast for me. Oh yeah. Um, Everybody was so engaged with it. It
0: was a lot of fun. Um it really was a blast. And I definitely fell into that camp of being much more engaged in the cinematic universes than the like comic book world. So that was really a lot of my first exposures to like superhero comics and it was fascinating to like take them on from that academic perspective and that historical lens. Had you been a comic book reader growing up or was like did you kind of have to get immersed into that too when you started working on the class? So when I was growing up,
1: I was, you know, kind of a lazy comic book reader. So So I did read comics, um, but I wasn't very uh, rigorous about, you know, collecting them. And, you know, they're Mm serialized. There's like each issue as it comes out. And I was kind of lazy about doing that. So I would miss whole, you know, issues and not have any idea what was going on. But I did definitely read them when I was younger. Um, You know, I was always a little bit more into the DC heroes, sorry, than the Marvel ones. (laughs) But I certainly liked them all. Uh, But, you know.
0: Yeah, that's very fair. Now I want to loop back around to Zoro again. Okay. And I guess I'm curious how did Zoro stick out to you as like really wanting to lock in on this character in particular? And what was your introduction to Zoro? Did it come like almost academically first or you growing up with those books as a kid or how did that start? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. So, uh I did grow up with Zoro. Uh, um, Zorro, for my father, was a really important character. So my father was Mexican-American. My mother was Irish-American. Mm-hmm. And so for my father, who grew up in New Mexico in the 1950s, Zorro, for him, was uh, like the only time he saw a Latino person who wasn't playing, you know, an idiot or a clown or, you know, a cold-blooded killer. Like, Zorro actually got to be the hero and got to, you know, stand out. I mean, there are complexities to Zorro. Certainly, but yeah. um, you know, and so because of that, he passed that interest and love onto his kids. That you know, so Zorro was always kind of um, around when I was growing up. Um, and then in the early nineteen eighties, there was a spoof of Zorro that came out that was a film called Zorro the Gay Blade, which um, was a comedy film that had a gay Zorro character. Um, and even though I mean I was a very young kid, and I obviously was nowhere near coming out at that point, but um, that definitely appealed to me on some sort of subconscious level Um, that was sort of campy and fun and um, a really different take on the character. It's not a great film in retrospect, but um, certainly I loved it when I was uh, a young kid. So it was, you know, so all that's to say that um, Zorro was sort of always around when I was young. And then there was a Zorro cartoon also when I was young that was short-lived and had Zorro action figure. Mm -hmm. Um, But then uh, later on, since as a historian, I focus on the experiences of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the U.S., it interested me that Zorro had been this character that was such a you know, long life, a hundred years of Zorro and U.S. popular culture. And that's interesting to think about, again, given that often, especially in the early 20th century and more recently, there is such a strong anti-Mexican sentiment in the so how is it possible to reconcile this character who's often beloved with also you know a a culture that is very hostile to anything mexican um so that was sort of my starting question for that project which i'm still working to figure out
0: yeah i was gonna ask and and like is there and do you have you have you thought of an end goal in mind of is this another book is this like have you thought of like when you have this history what you have thought of doing with it well i hope to have a book
1: um that is the, the goal it is i'm moving a bit slowly with it but i do hope ultimately to have, have a book and, and in some ways the book will be like the superheroes class except it'll just focus on the one hero but it'll i hope carry over time and think about you know the different versions of zora that have come out and how those have tied back to the sort of larger social cultural political landscape of the US um, and why that particular version of Zorro seemed to resonate at that, at, you know, specific moments in time.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating read. I mean, we got a couple of those, like, kind of the week of Zorro, which was really fascinating. To, that was my introduction to the character, and I really, he really stuck out to me. I really enjoyed that, that book that we read of his, and I'd be curious, have you thought of, too, like, what you would want to see from the future of Zorro? Like, have you thought of, if they did another film, like, how would you want them to do it, or anything in that sense?
1: So, you know, there are a couple Zorro projects that are in development. Um, So Disney Plus has uh, a project that they hope to launch that's I think a reboot of their 1950s television show, The Zorro Show. Um, And then I think Amazon Prime also has a Zorro project in the works. Um, You know, I think that for me, I think that um, it would be always best if people read history, if they're going to do historical fiction. So um, as we talked about when we talked about Zorro, like, you know, the creator of Zorro really had no idea what was going on in terms of history. So it's even unclear yeah. when in the past this is supposed to be taking place. Is it supposed to be, you know, in the Spanish colonial period? Is it supposed to be in the Mexican period? I mean, it's just like the, the markers of when this is supposed to be are actually completely contradictory. Um, so, you know, it would, as a historian, it would be nice if the new projects on Zorro did their due diligence and tried to figure out at least something about the past. Um, you know, and and I would also say to be good caretakers of a character that um, is one of the very few Latino superhero characters around. Um, so I hope they're also mindful of that.
0: Yeah, I, I hope the same. I've, I'll be really curious. I didn't know about those. I remember Googling, but I hadn't seen much. But that's kind of exciting. If they do a, I feel like a Disney Plus and an Amazon Prime show are going to be two very different takes on the character. But I'll be curious. <laughs> yeah, that seems really interesting, though. I'll have to, to follow those more. Final kind of question about zoro has there been like a truly shocking or like do you can you think back to like the most interesting discovery that you'd found once you started digging into this research
1: well there's been so many things i mean i think what has interested me is how many different iterations of zoro there are i mean so if, you know the main zoro the sort of central zoro is this um, wealthy guy diego de la vega who you know is in colonial los angeles maybe Mexican Los Angeles in the time period's often unclear. Um, but there also been, there's been women Zoros, there's been cartoons where Zorros in the future, there's been um, Zorro meets Django from Django Unchained, um, Zorro meets Dracula, Zorro... I mean, like, <laughs> the, like, the characters had this very interesting um, sort of set of um, possibilities that uh, I probably didn't... I mean, I just sort of assumed that Zorro was always, you know, set in a particular place with a certain you know supporting cast of characters and that was kind of it so um, yeah that's been interesting to me the different versions of Zoro that have come out.
0: Yeah that is really cool it was funny I was very mild spoilers for Ted Lasso but in the finale they had a Zoro reference and it was very satisfying to watch that especially after the class and I texted Natasha immediately and was like Ah, did you see that and it was a fun moment to like understand that little note because it's like it's one of those things like once you learn I think like once I knew about Zoro I kind of him peeking up in little bits of pop culture more and more so it's really cool yeah i mean he's
1: also interesting because he's not consistently popular right like he sort of has these moments where he's you know hugely popular and then he kind of falls away i mean he never completely disappears but he you know sort of recedes and then he becomes back um which is different than say like superman or batman um although batman has his own cycles of change but Mm -hmm. so yeah so maybe we're on the moment of another zoro resurgence
0: maybe i would be excited to see it i think it'd be cool to see him be a player in pop culture like really on the forefront again so yeah and i'm excited to see how that research continues to go just seems fascinating to get to catalog a character like that i mean it's a lot of fun yeah yeah right i'm amazed i'm paid for the job that i am paid (laughs) for that's incredible all right i want to jump into a couple of fun rapid fire questions there's a couple superhero ones in there too but i wanted to ask them the ones i love asking everybody first one is what is most impactful piece of advice that somebody has ever given to you
1: so one I mean, I've gotten lots of great advice, but something that stands out to me that I often think about, at least in terms of my work life, is um, to be the colleague you want, not necessarily the colleagues you have. So, you know, to always be generous, to, you know, always do the best you can, even if sometimes the people around you are a little bit frustrating, Um,
0: so... I really like that. I think that applies to a lot of situations, but I really like it in that context. That's a great piece of advice. And then the other one I love asking is, do you have like an ultimate tip for somebody going into college?
1: So, I mean, I'm not sure I have special insight, but I would say, you know, most university life is about just simply showing up. Like that gets you really far. Um, So attending class, going to lectures, just being present um, is really the thing that will help the most. Um, And, you know, university whether at the undergraduate level or the graduate level it's just about actually sticking through it and getting finished um so yeah show up
0: that's a good one that's that's a really important foundational piece of advice i love that switching gears entirely i do have a favorite superhero and also like a favorite superhero movie or something because i feel like those have been so big so well i'm off <laughs> i'm yeah, off zoro <laughs> i was gonna say But we'll set him aside, um, because that
1: might be a little obvious. Um, So when I was young, uh, the two heroes that I liked most were Spider-Man, Um, and Wonder Woman. So, and I've always had a a soft spot for both of those characters. Um, I think that each of them, when they were created, pushed the boundaries for their time period of what the superhero genre was doing, which, you know, obviously I didn't understand as a kid. But now in retrospect, I understand why they gained popularity. Although, as we talked about, you know, they also have complicated histories and backstories, um, especially the creators.
0: Um, uh, Yeah,
1: I really like those two characters characters in terms of a favorite superhero movie um yeah i don't know i mean again i'm so partial to the it's not a movie but i'm really partial to the linda carter 1970s wonder woman television series um which is super campy um and very 70s but um you know it's also nostalgic for me so
0: yeah that's really nice uh because you brought up spider-man i'm always curious do you do you have a preference between toby mcguire andrew garfield and tom holland or even miles morales i mean i love the all oh, actually yeah. i mean i really like miles morales i
1: really really liked um, into the spider-verse i'm excited to see the new one which is Me just too. about to come out as of this recording um so yeah i definitely like that character in terms of the live action um you know i never thought they could replace toby mcguire um but then i think tom holland has been amazing so um and poor andrew garfield always gets yeah <laughs> <She does. laughs> <laughs> um but yeah. you know I think they all have been great actually um it's interesting that that character is also a very flexible character um you can adapt to different um you know different character personality traits different personas
0: so yeah i completely good... agree i i think i'm also partial to tom holland i think it's the one that also i was at the like kind of the youngest age when he, when his came into debut where i was in like you know the peak of middle school and like i think i just really clung to him because there was like i think the lowest age gap even in part where like Maybe. i feel like i related to him more than i could like look and relate to like toby Maguire just because there was such a gap but yeah i do love i love all three of them and i'm, I'm glad andrew's finally getting his like after the latest tom holland film andrew garfield kind of came back into the spotlight a little bit but again they're all great iterations of the character yeah and the,
1: i mean you know very talented actors i think mm-hmm. who have been cast into those roles and each bringing their own sort of interpretation to it um
0: so yeah you know. It's fascinating that the majority of them are British. I think that's just an right. interesting <laughs> element. It's like playing this New York kid. Now, I wanna ask about for the final project for our history class was either you could kind of kind of like what you're doing with Zoro on a much, much smaller scale, kind of go back and catalog a history of a superhero and look into those themes of the character, or you could create your own. And I had a really great time creating our own. And I'm curious, have you given any thoughts like what hero you would create and maybe some of the dynamics that you would include in that character?
1: So, well of course. I mean, um when you work with this genre you think like well
0: can i come up with a character um
1: you know i I mean i think one of the reasons i became a historian is i'm not that creative (laughs) <laughs> it's easier to tell stories about something that happened than to invent new stories for me. Um, but you know, I would love a character again who is um, a Mexican American character who has a lot of popularity. Um, you know, I mean, as much as I love Zorro, he is a complicated um, figure that yeah. has baggage that um, is you know maybe could a different type of character could not have as much of. Um, you know, somebody who had the ability to make politicians be truthful would be nice. Um, <laughs>
0: that would be cool yeah is that have you like explored much of like blue beetle i feel like he's one of the other more prevalent like mexican-american characters that i've seen yeah
1: only very minorly um so it is a character i should probably know more about um but i don't know a lot about blue beetle actually yeah yeah, explore more
0: yeah i I mean i really don't either i saw i know he has a film coming up pretty soon which i'm excited to see because i think that'll be cool to see him on the big screen but yeah i don't know much from he was in one of the batman cartoons i grew up with but that was about it but yeah i think those are all great dynamics to a superhero character as well. I completely agree. And I think I think it's been really cool to see in the kind of recent Marvel universe, there's been, I feel like, a lot stronger push for representation on screen and broadening the backgrounds of the heroes in their lineup, which I think is, is a good push for the superhero medium. Well, I do too. I mean,
1: again, if the heroes and superheroes are supposed to be idealizations of what um, we as a society are supposed to value, then I think those heroes and superheroes should also then reflect the diversity that's within that society, um, mm-hmm. and valorize the elements of the society that um, are already exceptional. So fingers crossed.
0: Fingers crossed. Absolutely. <laughs> the final question is, what song would you add to a school survival playlist?
1: Yeah, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. Because again, I'm fairly far removed now from the age in which that you know in which i would be a student but um you know i i would say take your mama out by the scissor sisters would be a fun song um, okay. i think that could live through you um, know it's it's actually probably almost 20 years old now but still um, that would be what i'd
0: recommend awesome i can't say that i have listened to that song so i'll be excited to listen to it and i'll throw it on the playlist for sure Now, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We've kind of reached the end of this little interview, but I'm curious. Any other final question is, do you have anything else you want to share or plug or promote?
1: Not off the top of my head. I mean, in general, take more history classes. (laughs) Uh, So most universities offer history of pretty much anything that you might be interested in. Um, So whoever's listening, you are well-served
0: and to have a history class. So. Yeah, I'll link, I'll throw that in the link in the description, the, like, LSA course guide, and I'll just preset it so it just, is all history, <laughs> so you <laughs> can go through. Yeah, maybe I can plug your upcoming classes next semester if they're not already filled up, but awesome. Well, thank you again. Yeah. It's been a joy to catch up, and it was such a fun and amazing class to take with you, so I'm really grateful for that, and you'll be offering it again in the coming winter semester, so if you're listening, I wholeheartedly recommend if you're, you to to take this course, so. Well, thanks so much for me. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for listening to another episode of the Student Council. My name is Carter Dvorak. That is Professor Anthony Mora. I am so grateful for you to listen. If you want to find us, our Instagram is at stucopod and our email is stucopod at gmail.com. Wishing you the best of luck and the best of times in all of your educational endeavors. The Student Council is adjourned.